It's not about me and you, it's about the project or the client. And you want people to really grasp that. Business of Architecture, episode 257. Hello and welcome back, Architect Nation. I'm Enoch Sears, and this is the show where you'll discover tips, strategies, and secrets to run a more profitable and impactful architecture practice. If you haven't already, head on over to freearchitectgift.com and pick up a special gift that I've prepared specifically for podcast subscribers. On that page, you'll be able to access my four-part architecture firm profit map by entering your best email address. Today's podcast is sponsored by BQE Core, the all-in-one firm management software. Core helps you manage your projects and your finances to create a profitable and impactful firm. You can get a free trial as a podcast subscriber by going to businessofarchitecture.com forward slash demo. Our second sponsor for today's episode is Sage Glass. Sage Glass is the manufacturer of highly intelligent, reliable, dynamic glass. Sage Glass tints automatically to optimize daylight, reduce glare, and manage heat, all while maintaining unobstructed views of the outdoors. Visit sageglass.com to see the future of the built environment for yourself. I've seen it myself, and it is pretty fantastic. So let's jump right into our episode today. Today I speak with John Warasilla of Alliance Architecture. John founded... Alliance Architecture, in 1995 in Durham, North Carolina. We connected because videographer Jeff Durkin, who's featured on a couple of the previous episodes here on the show, was hired to create a film for a redevelopment project in Durham that Warasola's firm was involved in. So today, we jump into everything from marketing, business development, growing a staff, hiring people, even firing people, you will discover how John got his first architecture client when he opened his firm, his most effective avenues for finding and winning new work, and how he finds and coaches team members to produce great results. Hello, John, and welcome to the business of architecture. Great. It's, uh, it's awesome to be here. I'm a longtime listener, so uh, it's kind of nice to be on the other end of this. So, Absolutely. And you have a great story to tell. You've been in practice for quite a while. You've had your practice for over 22 years, started back in 1995. I'd just like to dive back to the beginning of that practice and ask you, John, what was it? What was the catalyst for going from an employee working for someone else to taking the next step, which was a freelancer having your own firm? How did that happen? Well, I'd I'd always had in my mind that I wanted to start my own practice. So I felt like the first you know, 10 or 15 years of my career were really about learning about the business of architecture, right? What does it take to build a successful practice? Um, How to really learn how to design. Uh, I had a great experience. I came out of school. I worked at RTKL in Baltimore. Uh, I was one of the first people recruited by Studios Architecture when they launched in Washington, D.C. In fact, I was the first employee. So I was attracted to that job because uh, my mentor there, Phil Olson, said, well, we're going to build one of the best design practices in the world. And uh, we're going to have offices in New York, London, Paris, uh, Washington, San Francisco. And Ten years later, we had done that. And, uh, and, and my next step was sort of partnership in that group. And um, people there had been really good to me, but I was finding it difficult to live with a wife and family in Washington, D.C. I felt like I could take some clients potentially and start you know, my own office, but that didn't feel or seem right. So I kind of looked around the country. My wife at the time was from North Carolina. Um, I saw over the course of my life, uh, 
the East Coast sort of spread out from New York to Washington and outward. And I thought, well, North Carolina would be an interesting state to look at. So we picked up everything and moved to North Carolina. And uh, we ended up down here and within a year set up our own practice. I'd taken a job when I first got down here with another firm that people, but didn't really fit with what I wanted to do long term. And, you know, a year later we were, we were in business. So. So it's like there's almost this story before the question that I asked you, this whole story of being the first employee at Studios Architecture. Tell me about that process, about how that you made that transition from whatever firm you're with before. Maybe it was RTKL. I can't exactly remember. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that was, uh, I got to a point where I really wanted to do a lot of construction admin on projects I designed. And in a big firm structure, you normally don't do that. You sort of stay in your silos. And I was like, no, I really want to do this. And they said, uh, they said, no, it's not really what our younger staff do. And I said, well, it's really what I want to do. And, you know, being young, I sort of said, well, if you won't let me do that, I'm going to go do something else. And I left. And I realized I'd never interviewed for any other jobs except architecture. So now I suddenly found myself having to find a, a job. And I'd pick up the paper every morning and I'd look for all kinds of jobs, designing cruise ship cabins, selling chemicals, just whatever's out there. Cause I realized I'd never done it. Right. You get such a channel as an architect, you go directly into that and uh, ran across the people setting up studios. I loved what uh, their passion about design was about and thought, well, if we do half of this, this is going to be an awesome experience. You know, 10 years later we'd done it. So. And you were the first uh, employee for that group. In Washington. Yeah. So they were setting up the office there. I was, they had a couple people who were founding, founding partners in the firm. And then I was basically the first employee. And the first day I showed up for work, they said, by the way, we're moving our office tonight to another floor. Can you help us, you know, pick up all the boxes, move and relocate? You know, I just sort of pitched in and said, sure, let's do it. But it really set a, a culture early on in that company of like, you do whatever it takes, you know, what do we have to do to make a business run? Go do it. It was very entrepreneurial, very, no one got in your way, which was terrific. I mean, there was no standards really established. So we had to set up standards for drawings and sheets and, and really everything. It was a great ground floor opportunity. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. So. And what were your major takeaways from the business side of architecture during that time? Oh, that's a great question, right? So, um, you know, by time I was five or six years into it, I would go to the, the weekly kind of business development. We, we'd have a staff meeting on Mondays and I'd go to the business development meeting. And, you know, probably about 91 or so, we, we hit a point where the recession was starting to, cre- starting to creep in, my first recession in the profession. And, um, and, you know, people left the meeting and two of the partners said, can you stay? And uh, I said, sure. And they sat me down and they said, you know, here are the numbers for the firm. We're about to go over a cliff. And, uh, and I looked at them and I said, well, that's, that's really interesting, but this isn't my company. You guys own this. What are you going to do? And they said, well, we need your help figuring out what are we going to do? So, you know, we spent about the next six months figuring out how to restructure the company, but it really gave me an insight into the number side of it. But the other thing I really learned in that was if you own a business about the, the biggest difference is, you know, what's going to happen before everyone else does. Right. So with that comes, I think, a pretty awesome responsibility to be a steward of like, okay, how are we going to react to that? How are we going to lead this? And so, yeah, I got exposed to some really awesome experiences early on. Uh, so it was very, very helpful for me going forward. And what were some of the things that you guys did to restructure the business during those six months? 
Well, I mean, unfortunately, the obvious one you do is you've got to reduce your payroll, right? So, you know, that that was kind of the knee-jerk reaction. I think the other part of it was really developing better structures for letting people know what's going to be happening, right? Like reporting numbers, report, you know, just, I think there's a real tendency in, in really all businesses that like people want to hide numbers, right? At the end of the day, numbers are just another tool, you know, they're just, they're another way to look at what's happening. And when you start to get people around you that are like not afraid of numbers, but you can recognize, oh, wait, here's what these mean. And here's what the implications of this are. That's really powerful. So to me, getting people not to be afraid of numbers became pretty important. I think that was a huge takeaway. And is that something that you were able to implement at that firm or did you have to wait until you had your own practice? Um, we implemented it to a certain extent there, but we really, I, I really tried to work with it more here when I, when I set up clients. Um, you know, I, I really also really learned how important it is to have a strong accounting function. Um, you know, so that was pretty important from day one for us to really be able to handle that stuff pretty well, uh, which I think we do. Um, you know, just, and it's really not making those huge points of emphasis, right? It's just, it's like a basic nut and bolt. You want to make sure it works every time, you know? So I think the other takeaway I had in it too is accounting often is a function that looks backwards. And I don't really, by time something's already happened, it's too late. Like I don't want to know what's happened. I want to know what's going to happen. So you want forward looking sort of looks into the future. So projections and kind of marketing and pipeline and development around those understanding, you know, what the future can be or might be to me is a lot more valuable than telling me what already happened. And what do you find are the most important things for you to get an idea of what the future holds? Um, it's it, I have a rule of thumb in my mind that from the point of time I hear anything about a project, whether it's a name of a building, uh, something I read in the paper, whatever it is, or a conversation I'm in, it's six months before it's actually revenue, right? So to me, it's sort of keeping a list of like how many uh, leads or prospects or ideas are out there that I think could become something and recognizing that any one of those probably takes six months before it's actually a check that shows up at your front door. So um, I think, you know, a friend of mine said, you know, you're always marketing and it's true. I mean, I, and it's not that I'm marketing all the time. It's that I approach the world with a view that any people I meet, any places I go, any things I see are a potential opportunity. So keep an eye out for everything, sort of. You know, that's interesting. Uh, I had the, uh, I interviewed Art Gensler, and he said that the same thing. He said when he was on a plane, he would give his business card to his seatmates, that idea of always marketing. You know, it's the strangest thing. I was on a plane going to Seattle two months ago, and... I was just talking to the person sitting next to me and the woman sitting in front of me when we landed reached over the seat and gave me her card and said, I have two projects that we're looking at. I think you might do really well with these. And, you know, how does that happen? It, it happens, I think, because you're open to it happening, right? Um, but it does. That's pretty awesome. So those are sort of the serendipity experiences. And what are the more intentional um marketing activities that you do uh, to bring in the work? Like you said, you know, what are you doing to get the 
those initial names. You said once you hear about a possible project, it kind of goes into your internal ledger. What are you doing? What are the activities you're doing, John, to get those initial prospects or leads? Well, I, I think in our market, like Durham, North Carolina, Raleigh, Durham's pretty small market compared to like a Washington or a, a Seattle or something like that. So the real opportunities for us in this market, particularly now that we're 20 years in, are we have a large body of work that's built, right? So we try and make sure that people at the front desk of wherever those places are uh, know who designed it, know who we are. And if someone walks in and says, wow, this is amazing, like who did this? They're, pro- they're kind of prompted to know like, oh, you know, Alliance did that. Here's how you get a hold of them, right? We also get very involved in a lot of different community events in, in the city, um, which is not really just about marketing. It's about stewards of, of, a, of a community you live in, right? And I think you develop a reputation over time. It's like, oh, yeah, they're the good guys. You really, you know, they're, they're really solid people. You know, they really uh, contribute not just financially, but idea and, and uh, intellect-wise to what a city and a place can be. So I think those are the things we do pretty actively. I, I think you build a network of, you know, in our in our industry, a lot of the food chain starts from sort of the commercial real estate industry, right? So I always try and know and have a good relationship with who are the top, you know, four or five producers in that area in terms of commercial real estate, particularly on the tenant side, um, and make sure they know who we are. I always try and make sure that I work with uh, two to three banks at any time from a financial standpoint, not just because it, it's good to have options of banks, but because they're the funding source for projects that are going to happen. So if they're trying to cultivate a relationship with me, I'm saying, well, look, here's how you can help me. You know, if you have people that are starting ventures or things like that, let them, you know, let them know that we'd love to work with them. Um, the other place we've really targeted in North Carolina, particularly this region, are startups. I love the idea of working with a company when they're small because it, so the analogy I use for that is a lot of times when someone's forming a company, what they normally put at the table is sort of a legal person, an accounting person, you know, an HR person. Very few companies put like a design person at that table, right? So I want to, I want to get to know a company early enough in their career and in incubation that they, that they value design. They put that at the table early on. And I find that a pretty effective place to market because those companies all know one another. They all talk to one another. And when they have good experiences with that, that spreads really quickly. So I, that's a real target for us. And how would you go about making yourself aware of, say, these startups? Uh, well, in North Carolina, there's a very active sort of startup industry. A uh, number of uh, developers and people we've worked with here have recognized that we need to sort of grow our own industries. You're not always going to recruit business to, to the region. So how do you create a very entrepreneurial uh, region, particularly because of the universities here, right? You've got three universities here, you know, UNC, Duke, uh, NC State, that are pumping out tons of young, bright talented people and a lot of them start to want to start their own businesses. Uh, How do you separate the, shall we say, entrepreneurs from the potential? I mean, there's probably a whole lot of startups. The number who would actually turn into a real company, I would imagine would be pretty small. How do you deal with that? Um, Well, the instability around that is, um, 
even if they don't really scale, they'll end up in other places, right? So, and, and some of these projects we're starting with are tiny. I mean, they're like 2,000 square feet. But people remember you when you help them get off the ground, right? And, you know, the next year they're 5,000 and then they're 10,000. And like a great story for us was Bronto Software. They started out as two guys. And then, then 10 years later, they exited their company. They sold it to, I think Oracle ended up picking them up. And they were at probably 100, 250 people. And we'd done 10 projects with them over a period of 10 years. But it was sort of five and 10,000 square feet at a time. So, When you're looking at nurturing these relationships, John, you said, talked about staying top of mind with uh, the commercial real estate scene, the brokers. Do you have any systems or processes or things you do on a regular basis just to keep those relationships alive? Um. I personally like to socialize. So I just call people and say, Hey, why don't we connect for dinner or drinks or just get out there and meet people? You know, it's, it's really sounds really simple and stupid, but it's kind of that simple and stupid, right? People like to connect, you know, and and, and, and some of it's regional, right? Like the region I'm in, North Carolina is terrific for that, right? There's a culture here. of If, if I don't match up with you, then, I know someone else you should talk to, right? And people will pass you over to that person. When I was in D.C., that market was a lot more competitive and, and you know, just, just a different culture to it. So you, you sort of have to find your niche in terms of where your comfort levels are. This has a, been a really good one for us. Okay, so let's go back again to the startup story, your own startup story, John. So you're, you're in Durham there. Uh, you'd been there for about a year, started your own practice. What were those, what were the challenging parts of those early days for you? Uh, I'll tell you a funny one. It was a challenging part, not challenging, but like a realization mentally was, um, you know, when we started, I didn't really take a paycheck, right? We might be accumulating some money in the company, but not getting a regular paycheck was psychologically like just bad. So even if it's a small paycheck, Getting paid regularly, if you're used to that, for me, was mentally really important to do. Um, I also found, like, first thing we had to do was start to recruit some talent. So I went to uh, NC State, and I really spent some time in the design studios there. I sort of looked for the people who I thought had really good potential. When they had their interview days, I really sought those people out. So I tried to build some of those people from day one. Um, Really, the the big breakthrough for us in terms of uh, getting past just starting the company was, well, well, let me go back. So the the first client we had was uh, a client that I, so speaking of which, I went to a commercial realtor who I was told I should go meet. I meet the fellow, showed him my portfolio from Washington. He literally gets up from his desk. He picks up the phone. He says, there's a guy sitting in my office you need to meet. And he hangs up the phone. And he says, Mike Condry wants you to come over to his office and meet with him uh, right now. Okay, great. He turned out to be a, uh, a relocated, he, he was running an insurance company, Northwestern, in North Carolina. He just moved from Nashville. He'd kind of inherited this territory. He had a plan on his desk another architect had done. He rolled it out. And he said, what do you think of this? And I looked at it. I said, you know, really, I don't think there's anything on this I would keep. And he said, I think you're right. And he, he, crum- he literally crumpled it up, threw it in the corner and he said, what do you want to do? And we went. And so that launched the company, right? It was our first account. And then uh, 
that got us going. And then we just, you know, started going out and meeting people and networking and, and built it from there. So. How long did it take before you hired your first full-time employee? Uh, we did that probably within about six months. Um, and that's terrifying too. You know, I, you look back on it 20 years later and it's like, yeah, you make payroll every week. That's what you do. But at the beginning it was daunting, you know, very daunting. And then it, I don't know, at a certain point you just, you get in a rhythm of that's what you're able to do. What, what really enabled us to scale was uh, my mentor from Washington, um, who's one of the founders at Studios, got to a point where he said, you know, I don't even recognize people in my own company anymore. I said, well, you know, Phil, you're a smart guy. Why don't you come work with me in North Carolina? And he said, well, my kids are all in school in Washington. And I said, well, my kids are all in school here. So he said, well, let's just open two offices. So that's how we ended up with an office in Washington and Annapolis, that market in North Carolina. And he brought with him a pretty large portfolio of a lot of law firms. He was still is a very accomplished law firm architect. And so we had projects at that point all over the Eastern seaboard. pretty quickly. So we went from about five people trying to accomplish what we were doing in North Carolina to needing to get to probably about 10 people in two offices um, at a much different scale. It probably it probably doubled or tripled our revenues at that point. So it really did amp us up to a different level of sort of business. What have you learned about hiring the right people over the past 22 years? Boy, I've learned two things in that. One is if you don't recognize it's the right person quickly or under like the second year it's not really going to match up try and find a graceful way to say you know I, I don't think this matches up um the other one and this is you know going to sound maybe kind of timely but we've had tremendous success with uh people who are first generation americans you know people who are immigrants like in our office i have we have a woman who's thai iranian uh not an immigrant puerto rican uh uh Malaysian. Uh, my wife is Indian. And you just get a really different culture when you work with people who have life experiences that have brought them here um, with what I would describe as almost something at stake, right? They really, you know, they want to be here. They want to work hard. They want to, and they bring a whole level of diversity to the table that I, I don't think we really consciously sought out to do that. It sort of evolved, but it's really changed the dynamic and the caliber of the people we have, because I think other people see how hard these people work and everyone gets like, wow, it's, you know, this is, this is pretty fun. You know, if you really dive in, you know, because there's no plan B, you know, I love working with people. Steve Jobs, I think had that great talk he talked about. If you ever get to work on a team of people who are all really good at what they do and they're really immersed in it, you're in for a really different experience and you never want to not work that way again. So that's, that's the kind of people I like to work with. So. John, you talked about recognizing early if someone's not going to be a fit. Uh, what are you seeing when you see that someone's not going to be a fit? Oh, boy. Great question. Um, I, and this probably isn't fair to some, some people like that, but what, I think I want people to come to the table with experience that are making the whole team richer. You don't want people to come to the table with, 
well, this is how we did this in, our, in my last firm, and, and we want we, this should become the standard, right? You, you want people to come to the table and say, hmm, I've seen the way you guys are doing this, and I think a couple ways you could improve this are to make these, make these adjustments, right? And, and there's a really subtle but huge difference in those two approaches, right? You want people that uh, can listen, be observant, but then also have enough confidence to say, I've watched this here's how I think you could do this better. That, that, that's ideal. The other ones become more, you know, it's almost like people's ego gets in the way of, uh, of, of doing the work, right? It's like, well, I have to put my stamp on this instead of realizing, no, it's a team. It's a collaborative basis here and, and everyone's working. It's not about me and you. It's about the project or the client. And you want people that really grasp that. So there's a bit of the attitude there of, of them, the way they approach perhaps improvements as they see it and how they deliver that to the team. Is there anything else that you're seeing that's kind of tipping you off in your gut or in your head that's saying, you know what, this person isn't a fit? Um, I, I think that's one of the main ones. I, I think sometimes you have a tendency to, to have been oversold. You know, somebody like the portfolio, I see that a lot actually in portfolios these days where the work the compute computers and animation and all kinds of tools like that have the ability for work to look brilliant, right? It just, it looks great. But then when you really start to work with someone about, okay, how are we going to build this? You realize, wow, there's really, there's probably a lot of mistakes behind the gloss, you know, and that's, I think you can teach and train people through that. I mean, I don't, I, I don't really hold that against people as like, Oh no, that we've made a mistake that it's just like, that's more about recalibration. It's like, okay, we're really not in year five of our career. We're kind of probably in about year one or two <laughs> with a with a great portfolio, you know. So, since we're on the topic of hiring and team, uh, you you talked about here in the the show notes that I have in front of me, uh, building a practice while keeping a. Uh, a high touch approach that would be for the clients, I guess, but also, you know, kind of leadership, growing people and growing a team. What are your major, um, you know, lessons that you feel you've learned, John, from, you know, this one thing to hire someone, it's another thing to coach them to their possibilities. Uh, let people make mistakes, right? I think of it as like you want sort of controlled um, experiences, if you will, right? Like you obviously don't want someone going out and making a catastrophic mistake, but you want someone, I think, to have the ability to have input or design something, draw it, go into the field and build, you know, work with someone to build it and then encounter, oh, wow, this thing that they thought was, you know, crystal clear is obviously not as clear as they thought. And I think there's a real temptation on my part maybe with a lot of other, you know, people who've been practicing a while, you want to step in and fix it. And I almost think you're, you're making a mistake in doing that. You want, you want those younger and junior people to no, they need, they need to kind of figure it out. They also need to feel a little bit of the heat of like, wow, people are standing around and they're looking at them saying, okay, what are we going to do? And I think if you're always stepping in there, you're not letting them mature and grow through that. So, so I think one of the big things and, in coaching and training people is, you know, set them up for success, um, but have them have incremental, you know, failures that you can help them have great life experiences in, in dealing with, right? 
Um, it's, it's a lot like parenting in a lot of ways, but it's, it's what it's like. How do you maintain the guardrails so they're they're not so wide or so sparse that people, like you said, fall off the cliff and make a catastrophic mistake? Um, let's say they do make a mistake. How how do you how do you internalize that and say, okay, this isn't the end of the world. This person's a good person. We just need to train them and help them get past this. Well, we sit, you sit down and talk to them. Like I, I spend a lot of time, me personally, I spend a lot of time on my project construction sites and job sites and those meetings. So I kind of set up this, this benchmark of, you know, if they're going to every single meeting, I'm going to every second or third, right? And just through experience, I have enough of a pulse on the job. And plus, you know where the parts of a project are going to be. Well, this one really is going to take some focus and attention. These other parts less so. So, you know, it's it's kind of like monitoring it from from an arm's length. But, you know, it, I, it's funny. After 22 years, you also get a real sense of, like, I can walk through the office and get a sense of, like, where things are going really, really well and where things are, like, maybe, you know, not as productive as they might be, so... A lot of it's intuitive. I think it's, it becomes very intuitive. What kind of communication do you have going on in the office so that you do and you can see when things might not be going the way they should be? We do a, we do a really important meeting for us that we call work for the week. So we get, and it's the same time every week. It's nine o'clock every Monday. It's like clockwork. Um, and what I'm really proud of is like, even if I'm not around, they will run that meeting themselves. So we, we gather everyone in the office um, we actually record it cause we have a studio in India. So we want them to be part of that. Sometimes just cause of time change, it's harder for them. And we go through every single project we have in the office. It's kind of bullet points, but we'll have probably 20 projects, maybe 30 going on and we wrap it up in an hour. But it, to me, that's the forum where everyone in the office has an insight to see kind of what's going on. And sometimes we'll stop on a project and, spend time on or share an experience of, well, last week, this is what happened on this project. We need to really be conscious of that. It's a great place to, uh, to pull out standard details that really aren't working, right? Like you'll just, you know, I've seen this detail now on three times on three different jobs. This doesn't work. We need to cull this out of our system. Um, but I, I find that's a, a great, tool. I think it's great because it's regular. It, it has a very broad look at everything and all the laundry's out on the table. It's, you know, it's like, just get it out there and let's talk about it. So. And what's the format of that meeting in terms of, is it sort of open-ended like, all right, just give me a quick update on the project or do you have bullet points? Like, tell me, you know, percentage of completion, tell me the budget, how granular are we getting here? Uh, we don't really deal with finance too much in that. It's more, more deliverables. It's, it's really like culture, like the culture I wanted to instill on it, it, instill in that is what do we owe that week, right? Like who, who, which client do we have deliverables for? And the key there is that I want people to know like, look, this isn't just that team or that person owes that. We as an office owe that to a client. So if we need to like scramble and reconfigure to get some more effort into that project. We'll reconfigure at that meeting and say, okay, we got four people pushing on this, you know, cause this has a big deadline on Wednesday. So it's our, it's our calibration attempt. Um, and it's written down. I mean, we have a written, uh, it's all written and it, and the nice thing about it too is team leaders are responsible to update their portion of it every week. So usually on Sunday, people are getting online, updating work for the week. 
And then we print it about 8.30 on uh, Monday and we sit down and we roll through it. We put it up on a big screen so everyone can see it. And I usually sort of are typing the edits in as we go. And at the end of it, we have an updated version of it and, you know, it goes out to the firm. So our marketing person usually sits in on it out of Washington. Our accounting person sits in on it. So it's a great place too, like over the course of a week, if a new project has started or a phone call came in about something, that's when we, you know, we'll say, hey, accounting, do you have this set up in accounting yet? You know, let's get that in harvest. Let's, you know, let's get these things set up now. So it's very actionable and it's very much in real time that we're updating those things. And that's a wrap. To discover more about the process for creating a better firm with less fires and more fun, go to businessofarchitecture.com forward slash freedom webinar. On that page, you'll be able to register for my next upcoming online training on how to create a firm that empowers your staff and is set to scale without chaining you to your desk. To discover how to market your firm to win the kind of projects and clients that you want to be working with and on, sign up for my next free design firm marketing training at architectwebinar.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by BQE Core, the all-in-one firm management software. Core helps you manage your projects and your finances, both in the office and on the go with a beautiful and easy-to-use mobile app. Get a free trial at businessofarchitecture.com forward slash demo. The views expressed on the show by my guests do not represent those of the host, and I make no representation, promise, guarantee, pledge, warranty, contract, bond, or commitment except to help you conquer the world.